Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and thank you for joining me on Living History. A new year, a new season of the podcast and I'm looking forward to a really exciting year of wonderful stories through history. And I hope you had an enjoyable break. I hope uh, the the new situation we find ourselves in with COVID at the start of 2021 isn't affecting you too badly. But obviously, my uh, my best wishes go out to everyone in these very challenging times. And hopefully, 2021 will see us start to come out the other side. But in the meantime, we've got each other. We've got history. We've got good podcasts. And that's what we're here to do. And so I wanted to kick off the year with something slightly different from walking the battlefields, from discussing chapters of history, we're going to talk about collecting, collecting militaria, which is something that a lot of people enjoy. It's quite a fascinating area of military history. And really, I wanted to have a discussion with a dear friend of mine and see if we can unpack this a little bit as to why people are so obsessed with finding relics from the war and and items that soldiers used. And the person joining me is Pete Smith. Now, you will know Pete from our Battle Walks podcast. If you haven't listened to Battle Walks, Go and check it out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play or wherever you find your podcasts. But Battle Walks is Pete and I walking the battlefields of Europe, and uh, we've really been enjoying it over the last couple of months that we've been doing it. But Pete is also an avid collector. He lives on the battlefields, and he's joining me now to talk all about collecting militaria. Pete, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Uh, Nice to be here again. Happy New Year to you. Thank you, mate. I wanted to kick this off. It's a, it's, it's a really interesting subject. And actually, let's kick off first with a bit of a warning, because when we talk about collecting here, we're talking about finding items that are associated with the war in, in a whole range of areas that we'll talk about. But the one thing I wanted to, to be very specific about at the start is the idea of collecting relics from the battlefield. And I know you and I share the same opinions about this, but that you know, for many years, I did I did gather small items from the battlefield when I was going around, a cartridge case here or a, a shell fragment there. But in recent years, I've really formed a new opinion about it, which is firstly, it's unsafe because there is a lot of unexploded ordnance on the battlefield. And secondly, the battlefield is a finite resource. There are hundreds of thousands of people who visit the battlefields all over the world every year. And if everyone takes something away fairly soon, there's not going to be anything left to tell the historic record. We don't want to get carried away. These aren't art- uh, archaeological artefacts. They're just often little bits of scrap. But but my position now is that we should not take things from the battlefield. Where do you, where do you stand on that? Ah. <laughs> um, I do 
pick up things um, and especially personal things uh, because there is an issue and that is that the plough will destroy them. If they're on the surface, they are going to be destroyed by the plough. The the modern mechanical way of ploughing will eventually destroy everything. So it's not as if they're there and they are going to be there for forever. They won't be. They will eventually be broken into little little pieces and and totally destroyed. Now, again, some people may think that that's really the right thing. That's where they, they should be. I have to say I don't agree. I, I quite enjoy picking up something. I get a buzz from picking up something and knowing that the last person possibly to touch that button was a soldier as he fastened his tunic. Let's hope he survived and the button just fell off his tunic. Um, but it, but I think it's important that they're there, especially when I ran a, a bed and breakfast. I don't any longer, but it was nice to have something in cabinets that people could look at and, the, and, the, and I could explain what it was. Um, but I still just enjoy picking up little pieces that remind me of the soldier. So I don't t- touch munitions. I don't touch anything, almost anything wary, really. It, it is those personal things, the bit of a toothbrush, the bit of a comb, the bit of a shaving mirror that I tend to pick up and it just gives me a, a, a connection. I suppose that's what it's about, really, is getting a connection with the person that owned that. I must agree with that, Pete, that the things that over the years I have found on battlefields that resonate the most with me and are still the most treasured parts of my collection are those personal items and things like, I remember collecting a coin from the Australian trenches at Bullecourt and a and a full piece of webbing equipment, leather webbing equipment on the battlefield of Pozier and a boot at Bullecourt. Um, and even in Guadalcanal in the Pacific Islands, picking up a shotgun cartridge following in the footsteps of a soldier I knew had used a shotgun in a specific battle. So I, I do agree that that personal items are um, are quite moving parts of the whole the whole story. Speaking of stories, why don't you tell us just about your experience with collecting? Because I know that you've been collecting you know, for a very, very long time. Tell us how you started and, and what items you originally collected yeah it is a very very long time because i was literally about between six and ten i'm not sure exactly when but i had parents who were very keen uh, in history and on the tangible aspects of history so we went to castles and forts uh, etc uh, from as long as i can remember but you're either born with the collecting bug i'm a big believer that you're born with the collecting gene the collecting bug or you're not because i've, I've tried to make uh, my children interested in collecting over the years other, other family members interested in collecting and nobody really is apart from i have one brother in australia who actually lives in australia and he does collect but the rest of the family uh, did not apart from my mum and she was very keen that i should uh, come with with her to junk shops and uh, and and auctions uh, and find something very early that i was interested in and it was something very unwary in a certain way but yet very interesting and that is and almost not really military. It's the, the the postcard that the soldiers sent home, or in fact were sent to the po- the soldiers. This is First World War. Um, at the time when I was collecting, they were pence. They were literally pennies. And so you could go into a, a junk shop and buy a handful of postcards written from the trenches, photographs of the soldier, and it gave you a, a tangible link to those men. So very much as I've just been discussing about picking something up from the ground, it was picking something up from the junk shop that gave you that link. And from a very early age, I felt that link. I felt I, I, I felt there was a connection to that soldier by looking at what he had written and also what was on the postcard. And very often they were comical postcards, a lot of uh, comedy in the First World War. It's, it's the other side of the coin to the horror and uh, of what was going on, these postcards that gave a comical outlook. And so that's where I started, was collecting these postcards for, for pennies. I tell you what, Pete, you tell that story and I lament the fact that I was not in the UK in the 60s, 70s and 80s when I just hear these unbelievable stories of people going into junk shops at a time when the First World War had really fallen out of favour. I think there was a a bit of a hangover from the Second World War. I I just don't think people were that interested in it anymore. And 
the stories of what people would find when they went into junk shops, photo albums full of photos that soldiers had taken, metal sets, equipment, personal items of soldiers that, you know, soldiers had fallen on hard times and sold or had passed away and their families had gotten rid of. Just the stories that people tell of being in the UK in the sort of 70s and 80s and the stuff you could find in junk shops. Did you did you find that experience? Yeah, there was something else going on. I'm from the city of Hull, uh, or just from the outskirts of Hull, so I used to go into the Hull to the junk shops. And I, a little motorbike used to whistle around. That was my Saturday morning, really. Was uh, Everybody else went to football. I went to the junk shops. And I just spent the, the, the day whistling around on my motorbike from shop to shop. Because something else was happening in Hull, and that was they were demolishing the terrace rows, the old houses back-to-backs. They were being pulled down and cleared for um, a modern housing. And, of course, as they pulled these down in the attics, they found all of these souvenirs that had been put there 70 years before. And uh, just extraordinary what was being found. And, of course, what most of the people did, the demolition guys, the people clearing the houses, they just took them to the nearest junk shop, nearest antique shop, and said, what will you give us for these? And they gave them a couple of quid, and, and that's that's where they, where they were sold on. And so you're absolutely right that the stuff that was turning up was just extraordinary. So I did. it was exactly the perfect time to collect. The one thing I regret terribly is that I didn't ever get the connection with the, the men themselves. And, of course, at this time in the mid-'70s, the men were still alive in, in great numbers. And I didn't ever bother to kind of go around and, and, and find out where these guys lived. It was something that I've always regretted. I remember my father going into work, into his office, and there would still be First World War veterans at the end of their working careers working where my, my dad worked. And I asked him if anybody had any cat badges. I just fancied I was about 11. I fancied collecting cat badges. And my dad came in with armfuls of cat badges that evening that had been given over during the week to him to bring home. And... Uh, some of them were the men themselves. They'd actually given them their personal cat badges and no thought even crossed my mind. Perhaps it would be interesting to know what this guy had done. So I regret that terribly, that, that I didn't get that connection, which other historians and uh, and friends did. And they went and visited and recorded uh, the, the veterans. Of course, Peter Hart doing it professionally uh, with his job at the Imperial War Museum. Uh, so thank, thankfully, lots of people did it, but I was sad that I didn't and, and regret not doing it. I think I was a little bit the same, Pete, and maybe it's just when you're young and you have a different perspective on things. I know that people like Richard Van Emden, the great historian, spent a lot of his teen years and early 20s out talking to First World War veterans, but I think that's highly unusual. I remember hearing on the news that the last Gallipoli man, the last man who landed on the first day at Gallipoli, had passed away, and he lived about two suburbs away from where I lived. This was in 1997, and he passed away. Ted Matthews, and um, for, for years I'd been living literally only streets away from him and the thought had never crossed my mind to go and track down and see if there's anyone around so i think that's um it's probably the fascinating aspect of what we're discussing here pete is that we you know we want to make these connections with these men and yet when we had the opportunities to do it we uh we perhaps didn't it, it's not an easy thing to yeah. do it's, it's easier said than done to say i'm going to go out and forge relationships with war veterans it's a difficult thing to do but uh, isn't it a fascinating thing that we, we still want to feel these connections, but just in a different way to actually going and, and, and speaking to these soldiers? Yeah. I mean, I'll just explain something that this is very recent. There was a little bit of archaeological work being done uh, in the, on the salient in Ypres, and it closed very close to Ypres. And it was destructive archaeology because they were going to put a gas pipeline through the, the area. So it didn't matter what they did. So they were they were deconstructing a trench effectively, and they, they went straight down and through the duckboarding floor. And I took a few duckboards home because they were going to do nothing with them. They were going to be burnt. They were going to be destroyed. Just to just to feel that the soldiers had walked on those those pieces of timber. 
and and they're they're polished up now just to to, to or protected not overly polished I suppose I'm not that that keen but they're, they're protected now just just like picking them up and knowing that that these the boots of the First World War veterans the soldiers well they were not veterans the soldiers walked on these duckboards. Fascinating stuff, mate. I mean, what tell tell us over the years what sort of items you've collected and and, and what they mean to you when you uh, when you have them in your possession. Well, I've been the, the the full gambit, really. I suppose I started off with postcards. I then went to something. Some people may know what this is: crested china. Crested china is a a white porcelain china that was very popular before, during, and just after the First World War. It has the crest of a town or a badge on it. Uh, sometimes a military badge, and you can get uh, jugs and little jugs and little all sorts. But in the First World War, they turned their hand again, odd, odd really, but they turned their hand to doing souvenirs related to the war. So you could buy shells and tanks and guns and all sorts of, of little ornaments that were, were vehicles or things associated with the war. So very, very strange, but I collected those and um, occasionally I go off tangent. I collected bottles only because, as a, again, in my early teens, I discovered where the old rubbish dump very close to the village I lived in had been, the Victorian rubbish dump. And so with shovel in hand, I went and, and dug in the d- rubbish dump and found all of these bottles. So I go off tangent occasionally. As a collector, you, you, you do that. And then I became interested in bayonets. So I, connect, I collected uh, bayonets from the First World War, from all nationalities and... And then on we go, uniforms and uh, again, and then I started to get this interest. As I, as I got into my late teens, I started to get more of an interest in the people. And so sadly, almost too late, but I started looking at you know, the, the name that was inside that piece of uniform, that piece of equipment. And slowly my collecting went to really things that I knew I could research that had a provenance. And you have to remember in the late 70s, early 80s, Research was still very difficult. Uh, no computers or very few computers, no internet. So everything was manual. It was going down to the library. It was telephoning other people. I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to other collectors and other uh, people interested in, in memorabilia. And slowly you learn. And that's really the key because I didn't just stick to one thing. I didn't collect postcards or photographs all of my life. I collected anything that I found was interesting. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It meant that, that my knowledge base grew and grew. Um, and the other thing I became interested in, museums. I've always volunteer, become a volunteer at museums because it gives you that opportunity to handle things that you will never or very rarely handle in real life. And there's nothing better than being able to tell whether something's a fake or not. Having said that, at this period, very little was faked uh, to do with the First World War because it wasn't overly collected. Um, the Second World War, especially Nazi German stuff, that I've never been really able to understand why people collect, collect that. Well, I can. As a collector, I do know why they collect it, but it didn't interest me. It's all 
always been just very specifically the First World War and British First World War. I'm not brilliant at uh, at German stuff, uh, but British First World War memorabilia, that's that's my thing. And I have to say, as I began to travel more, I, I joined the Royal Marines, so I spent a lot of time travelling. It meant that I had to collect something that I could that was portable. And so the postcards and documents, I became very interested in letters and uh, uh, photographs, not just postcards, photographs and any kind of documentation under the general term of ephemera or ephemera. I've never quite, no, obviously, I think I think ephemera is correct. Um, and that's paperwork that would normally be thrown away. So the, the railway ticket uh, for a soldier coming home on leave, things like that really fascinated me. Uh, are you still collecting these days, Peter? Is that something that belonged to your youth? You can see because uh, we're we're skyping. But you can you can see that I collect books. I'm very interested in books, uh, so I still uh, collect books on the Great War and ephemera and photographs. I still because it is small still and, and it's still relatively cheap. All of those things are cheap. Uh, equipment, uniforms, very expensive nowadays. Also, the other issue I have is I don't live in in England, uh, Britain, so I I no longer have access to those things from the attics that do a stage occasionally turn up. Uh, so I generally speaking, I, I buy uh, online now uh, the odd little the book, uh, the odd bit of ephemera that I've not seen before, something unusual, a photograph that I've I've not got. I've got about four thousand photographs, uh, postcard photographs of the of the Great War, and trunks and trunks full of of documents and, and letters and things. So so it's a it's a big um, it's a. It, I feel like I'm I'm only a custodian of these things. I have to say, I I'm one of those those people. I'm quite happy to pass on the information that I have, and sometimes even pass on the the artifact itself. Um, I don't always feel that it's necessary for me to own it. And I felt very often in my life as I collected that I was really an archaeologist recovering things before they ended up in the ground. Because very often a lot of the things I, I, I managed to get hold of were on their way to either the fire or the dump, uh, uh, literally, because I, I was very friendly with some people that worked in the old uh, the rubbish industry, in the recycling, as we now know it. Um, and so they would keep things for me that they thought I might be interested on and I would pay a few pounds to, to get them from them. So... I was getting things in some cases just before they were due to be disposed of. And so I've always felt that the, that that it was important to save these things and also that knowledge that once I've saved them, then they're not going to be lost because uh, when, I, when I no longer want them or I've gone, they will go to somebody else who will hopefully revere them or look after them and, and feel, feel that connection that I did. What are the highlights of the things you've collected over the years? Now that's a very, and I knew this question was coming, and it's always very difficult for me to answer. I suppose it's the unusual now, and it's changed my outlook on on what I really enjoy looking at. It's the unusual. So I have a whole series of letters that were written by a conscientious objector, and they're fascinating. Um, I have a series of letters written by a padre, again, during the First World War. Very, very interesting. So those first-hand accounts I find fascinating. But it's also... Other things that you find occasionally, uh, this is a rather horrific story, but it just shows you what is still out there and you just have to have an element of look and and keep looking. I found a little pocket Bible uh, to a soldier and it wasn't until I looked carefully, probably only two or three weeks after I'd bought it, that I realised there were tiny holes going right the way through it and it suddenly dawned on me what Nate would make tiny holes through a a pocket soldier's pocket Bible and of course it's shrapnel and I realised that this thing had been in his pocket and... Uh, and and the, what I thought was dirt soaked through all the pages was in fact his blood, and so a, a horrible realization of what I had, and then to look more carefully through each page and turn each page 
to discover his story because he'd written his story into the Bible. The fact that he joined up as an 18 year old in 1918, uh, captured eventually having been wounded, had a limb amputated. I don't know which he doesn't state and then returned to England as a, in, in a prisoner exchange. Uh, that took place. So his whole story was in there just in the back. The only thing he didn't do was write his name. So I still don't know who he was, but, but everything else was in there. I know where he came from, what church he, he uh, went to, because in fact he was given by the minister of the church, gave it to him before he, he left for the war. So it's those personal things that, that I really find the most, the most interesting. But there are oddities. One of the other things that I found on the battlefield many years ago was a live bullet. Um, and again, we've just been discussing Dunt. I wouldn't recommend that you pick them up, but I live here and I've lived here for nearly 20 years. So just picking up a bullet and just having a quick look at it. And this bullet had been struck on the back. So in other words, it had been in a, in a rifle, the, man, the soldier had pulled the trigger and the bullet hadn't gone off. And to find that bullet in the ground with no rust stains on it, which means that he managed to eject it from uh, from the weapon, you realise that this bullet tells a whole story, and it is a story of, of horror, really, in one way or another. Did he manage to get a, another round into his rifle and, and, and shoot at again at whatever he was he was shooting at? Did the soldier he was going to shoot at duck out of the way and was not killed and so survives and goes on and has a family? Did this guy survive? So we'll never know, but, but just that one bullet with that pin mark in the back to show it had been struck but hadn't gone off just really made 10 me cold when I had it in my hand and it was something that I felt I needed to keep so it's it's on my in fact it's just behind me here it's on the on my bookshelf here Pete this is why you know you talk about having the collected collection the collecting gene and not having the collecting gene but I think even just the way you told that emotive story and the connection you can find with those items that's why it's important that people preserve them because most people wouldn't be like that most people pick up a bull and go oh you know even if they recognized what it was a, a misfire they uh, they wouldn't care. So the fact that you formed that association, I think that's what uh, you know. That's why people like you are doing such a great job of keeping the history alive. So I, I think it's absolutely wonderful. In fact, I'm going to get a little bit philosophical here. I'm going to ask the question: Why do we collect? Why is it important? You know, not why is it important. What drives us? What are the emotions behind it? What what is this desire to connect with the history in these with it, through these tangible objects? Well, lots of people are interested in history, and I have to say I, have, I know lots of, of academic and uh, historians who are not really interested in collecting, and that's fine. I, I understand that as well, and they just love reading the stories, reading the books, and and, and, and knowing what went on, and, and really they do collect in a way. They're collecting the knowledge. Um, but I feel, I feel it's nice to have something tangible, and I feel that uh, certainly for, there is a certain type of person, and I must be one of them, that needs that actual physical artifact to help you then get that connection. It helps you to 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 feel that you you know a little bit more about that person by having something that belonged to them or something that came from from that battlefield. It, so it's a tangible. Yes, you can go and look in a, in the museum, and you can do the same by looking at things in the museum. But to own a piece yourself. And I'm surrounded by all sorts here on my desk. I've got fossils going right the way back to millions of years ago. I've got a piece of medieval pottery right in front of me with with the 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 potter's thumbprints in the in the clay. Now, to me, that's 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 one of the best things I've got. I found it in the field around here. Nothing to do with the First World War. It's to do with uh, it's, it's almost going back to the Dark Ages, as we used to call them, very early medieval um, in France. And here's the man's thumbprint where we can see his nail in the clay. And it's that connection that I just just love uh, knowing a little bit more, a little bit more than knowing what he was doing and who he was. But there's there's his thumbprint in in that clay. So it's. 
it's something that I think as, as, as a human race, it's, it's something we need to do to have that connection to our past, to know a little bit more, to be able to hold a photograph of a relative. Well, I hold photographs of lots of relatives. It's just odd that none of them are my relative. But at least I'm holding that photograph. I'm keeping their memory alive a little bit longer by having that photograph and caring for it and then hopefully passing it on to somebody else in the future. So it's, it's that tangible connection. I think it's important that we, that we have that as a, as a human race to have more than just the knowledge to have those tangible, tangible artifacts that take us back to, to earlier days. What do you think is going to happen in the future of collecting? Because rare items and, and, and sort of prestigious items to do with the first and second world wars are now very, very expensive. What, what do you think the future of collecting is going to be? I think it changes. I mean, I think people collect dif- different different things. Um, so if you're a collector, you will change your collecting theme. So uh, just as a matter of interest, it's a, it's a by the by. But I obviously here, I can't get the, the things that I would really like to collect, those First World War pieces of memorabilia to the, to the British Army. I started collecting 1960s China. Um, so heaven knows why. I just like it. It's cheap. It's very visual. Um, and it doesn't take up that much of a space. So I've moved on to something else, but I still keep my eye out for those, those older artifacts. And I think that's one of the important things. You move on to something else. If you're, if you're collecting history and you want to keep those artifacts alive and, and, and carry them on into the future without them being destroyed, then, it, then it's important. So yes, I can't get that much first war memorabilia. But let's hope that things turn up still. And I know from collecting friends, they're, they're, they're always ringing me up and, or emailing me, emailing me and say, Pete, you'll never believe what I found in the market yesterday. So things do still turn up. It's just that they don't turn up quite as often as they did in the 1970s and 80s. And Pete, if someone's listening to this and we have a lot of young listeners and people who perhaps aren't as experienced in the world of, of military history as we are, and they are excited by this and they want to start a little collection themselves, what advice would you give to people who are just starting out in this field? Knowledge. Knowledge knowledge is everything. Um, Don't collect anything that's really expensive because until you become knowledgeable, there's a lot of people nowadays who sell fakes and replicas and reproductions. Um, So start with something. Postcards being still not particularly expensive, a lot more expensive, three or four pounds. Now you'll pay for an interesting postcard and a lot more if it gets very interesting. Um, my older boy, who's now in his 30s, has suddenly become interested in postcards himself. And so uh, he's interested in postcards of the Royal Marines in the First World War. So I've just been buying him the odd one and feeding it to him. I'm hoping to encourage him to to get that collecting gene because he's probably going to inherit quite a bit of my collection. So I really need him to be interested. Um, but I would recommend start with something that is researchable. You can get the books out on it so you know what you're looking at. Go to museums. That's the other thing I would always say. Go to museums, go and do a little bit of, of, of research. But when you find that thing that you're interested in, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a coin, a stamp, a, a postcard, a photograph, a letter, just think about the person that once licked the back of that stamp and stuck it on that postcard and post, put it, took it down to the post. What was he like? What was he doing? And why was he doing it? And I think it takes you into history. It brings history alive. So doesn't really matter what you collect but start with something that's uh, that's not too expensive so if you don't get it right all the time then you're not lose losing too much money excellent advice pete and i think it's a, it's a really fascinating area it's not for everyone i should say there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are scratching their heads and wondering why the hell we bother it's not for everyone and to be honest i don't collect much stuff anymore when i was younger i had a, a, an obsession with holding the objects from the war and now i really content myself with just walking the ground and taking photos and and reading books but it is it is something 
quite remarkable to feel that connection with a soldier. As you say, those items that a soldier personally held, you know, the duck boards you talked about that they walked across on the battlefield, the postcards that they sent. For those of us who who get it, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful connection with history. So, Pete, it's been really lovely. Thank you for just coming on and sharing your thoughts. And if people are listening to this and want to get out and collect, then uh, go and do it. I think it's a really rewarding aspect. And particularly given the internet these days, we do have access to more oh. items than we ever have uh, before through the, the eBay and, and other sites like that. So, Pete, just thank you so much for joining us and, uh, and sharing your experiences in this field. Oh, pleasure, Matt. It's been good fun. And don't forget as well, if you want to hear more from Pete and I, tune into Battle Walks, our other podcast, available wherever good podcasts are found as we walk the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you again on Living History. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.